Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha, and thanks for joining me today. We have with us returning Dr. Patricia Wright. Patricia, thanks for being here. Oh my gosh, and it's always so fun. I like podcasts in general, and because you and I have such a long history, it's just fun to join you and be in conversation and have fellowship with you and everybody else who wants to participate. You know, I started this podcast because there are just incredible people in my space and in this field, and I thought they have such incredible stories to share. And Patricia, you are just one of those people. Why don't we begin by having you give an introduction of yourself for our listeners? Absolutely. So I'm Patricia. I, gosh, a little bit when I think about facts about me, uh, probably my first identity is that I'm a teacher. trained as an educator and I still identify as a teacher, although I have not carried my own classroom in a really long time. I am a lifelong educator. Uh, I just qualified for AARP, so that gives you my age demographic. Uh, I identify as a white woman. I am married to an awesome human named Lori. Um, I've lived all over the country, but I've always lived in the United States. And yeah, I just really like to I'm also very social. And so I, uh, when I get to meet people, I always say I welcome engagement. I welcome engagement on any social platform in person. I just so appreciate the opportunity. I'm extroverted by nature. So anytime um, anybody wants to connect, I just, I am such a, I so value human connection. Yes, I definitely feel that. And when people are around you, I find they're really attracted to your energy. It really draws them in and invites them into a conversation. One of the things that I love about your contributions, and there are many, is that your perspectives are shaped from the various places that you have lived. You talk to us about cultural competence. You you introduce and, and expose us all to cultural humility and you have lived a very full life from my vantage point and your experiences and the way that you share them from my perspective give so much for us to think about even those of us who have been in the field and practicing for 15, 20, 25, 30 plus years. And Patricia, I just greatly value and appreciate that about you. You know, something that I think the field often does is we say that things like the line between cultural competence and humility is not black and white. Ethics is not black and white. And yet we give examples that are very black and white. And so when we can talk about the layers of complexity of the considerations that have been shaped by our experiences and then share them with others. I just think there's so much value in talking about those shades of gray. Shades of gray. I was just telling someone a story about that. Recently, I did a training. um, I've done some work with an organization called The Five Project, and they work in mainland China. And uh, I was telling someone about my first trip to go work in China. And um, I I love to teach literacy. I love teaching reading. I find um, literacy to be such a you know, a form of communication that's so powerful. And I was sharing it with them that uh, someone said, oh, we're trying to teach this child how to read and um, can you help us? We're having some difficulty. And I was like, all in my power, I'm like, oh yeah, sure. And I like marched right over, uh, you know, and again, I have an interpreter with me. I don't speak Mandarin, but I have an interpreter. I'm like, I get up there and I'm like, yes, let's get started. And, uh, 
And then I was like, watched it for a second. And of course, Mandarin's not a phonetic language. I have no idea how to teach anybody how to read a non-phonetic language. And within about five seconds, I went, oh, I have no idea what to do. None. I can't even, I don't even know what, I don't even know what we're talking about. I don't even know, I don't even know what characters are. I don't even know. And I remember just being so like, like, come on, Patricia, like take a minute when you're, I just thought reading, yes, I love literacy. Um, and then, you know, of course had some dis conversation and discourse with this person, but man, man, I am humbled every single day, <laughs> every single day. And, but I do agree, like when you get to work across cultures, when you get to work internationally, when you get to work all these things, it is a reminder of, you know, gosh, and maybe it's just the older you get AARP membership. Um, the the like the older you get the less you feel like you know and the more you have opportunities to learn it, it is it's a very humbling experience so beautifully stated maybe maybe that's it <laughs> maybe it's as i get older i'm like gosh well i become less confident in what i knew or perhaps my experiences or as our experiences become more diverse you know not everyone has an opportunity to live in a place where they are a minority and some people that is their entire experience and so being in different situations definitely stretches us and our thinking because it shakes out who we are. And indeed, oh gosh, well, you know, for one, I feel like every time I have seen you, especially in the last, let's go with the last two years, we'll say that I see a bigger and bigger and brighter and brighter smile. As someone who sees very much, seems like you cherish life from my perspective, from my vantage point, but I also remember reaching out to you after seeing you at a conference and saying, hey, what's your secret to life? I think you might have thought I was calling you about, you know, like, what are you doing for work? But really, I was like, what is this joy? And you mentioned that focus on well-being. And so by seeing it, you really make me want to know more about it. Yeah, I feel like I'm getting the opportunity to kind of live uh, the theory of well-being. So... I have an amazing professional opportunity and I am now the executive director for the last year and a half of a private operating foundation called Proof Positive uh, Autism Wellbeing Alliance. And, you know, thinking about well-being has not necessarily been in my vocabulary within my working history of being an educator and being a behavior analyst. I think I always knew I wanted people to be happy would probably have been the word that I used, but I didn't have the vocabulary around well-being that I do now and understanding kind of the theory of well-being. And I'll talk a little bit about that. But, you know, if I could, you know, share like this new organization, Proof Positive, our mission is to spread the science and skills of happiness. I mean, come on, Amanda, who doesn't want that for their job? Spread the science and skills of happiness. I mean, I feel like hello, best job ever. I'm spreading the science and skills of happiness. And because it's a, a foundation, our founders have given our organization the grace to actually spread the science and skills of happiness free of charge. So all the materials we develop, all the information, all of the capacity we're building is available to people um, without need for, for payment. And I just feel like that is such a huge opportunity. So yes, and it has impacted my life enormously. And I'm super excited, you know, kind of love to share more about it with other people too. 
Well, when you talk about it like that, who wouldn't want that for their job? And I imagine with a job like that, if we can really embrace it and it means what it says, like I was thinking, who wouldn't want a life like that? And you know, we talked about balance and we strive for it. I think I strive for it. Sometimes I tell my therapist, uh, uh, my life is balanced. It's just intensely beautiful and intensely heavy. Um, but that's not quite the balance I think we're going for. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think of, like on two capacities, right? So professionals, you and I are both kind of long-term professionals. And, you know, there's plenty of data about there about, you know, kind of the direct support professional workforce crisis. We see it in behavior analysis with RBTs and recruitment and I just read something from the Gallup poll last year, and it was four in 10 teachers um, uh, are burned out always or often. And I'm like, oh my gosh, 40% of our teaching force is burned out. Like that is, I just feel like, oh my gosh, I, I want my, I want educators to love going to work and being passionate about what they're doing. But what they're saying is that, that we're really burned out. And then, so that's from the professional capacity. And then from, I mean, I've always worked in autism services and supports and I'm now like, I'm about 40 years into my career and we're not getting the life course outcomes that we wanted, right? So adult outcomes, we've got suicidality and mental health issues and, you know, loneliness and all these things. And I'm like, what can we do? It's like, well, we can teach the skills of well-being like that's what we can do is we can for all of us everybody and and you know we see so much well-being um kind of manifested on our social posts and things like do this do this but it's like i don't want the autism community to be left behind you know we see mm. corporations doing it's like okay what about autistic people and what about the people who support autistic people like let's make sure that we're included and that's kind of what proof positive that's our that's our mission is to ensure the well-being of of the autism community. Wow. That I mean that's incredible and it's it's so specific and yet it's often so overlooked, right? I think anything for our community outside of those who are living and breathing it and have made it our life career. I mean, our life's mission to support it's not always something that's on the radar of everybody else or even within their repertoires. If it were on their radar, like what what do we do? What does it look like? You've made the comment that it, you know, if we mention the well-being, we see the desires for well-being, and yet we don't. And so what does it look like? How does it get done? And I'm curious, how do we practice something that we don't know how to do or maybe that we are deficient in doing ourselves? So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that to understand more about you know, the theory of well-being, and also you talked about this vocabulary building, and we know the weight of words. And so, and so I have many questions. You, we can go wherever you'd like. Sure. So, uh, and again, like I'm a lifelong learner. That's my identity. So I've also been digging in uh, by no means. So I have expertise um, at Proof Positive. We do have a content expert named Katie Curran, who's my partner in this. Um, who is kind of degreed and studied and learned and and the you know positive psychology is the field um, and the founder of positive psychology interesting enough is Dr. Martin Seligman who is an experimental psychologist by training so very familiar to all of us the field of experimental psychology but in 1999 he founded the field of positive psychology and that is the kind of scientific study of what makes 
individuals and communities flourish? Like, what is right with you? How do you, you know, build on what is, build on your strengths, all of those things. And the theory of well-being, which I've now learned, is contains kind of five principles. So in order to support your well-being, you have to have positive emotions. I think we can be familiar with that. And that's, that is happiness, but that's also gratitude and pride and hope and love. And, you know, there's, there's 10 kind of known positive emotions. So positive emotions, engagement, people like you and me know engagement, like, you know, when you want to get engaged, we get into flow. I mean, it's just this amazing thing. Relationships, no doubt, right? People, I mean, I just described early on relationships. I, I, I feed off people, but we know relationships are important for everyone. Meaning or mattering. So M, meaning and mattering, uh, and that is, am I connected to something that's bigger than myself? Am I contributing to something that's bigger than myself? And then accomplishments, meaning kind of what am I getting done? Why am I setting goals for myself? All of them. And that's called the PERMA theory with the acronym. And one that's been added to that, which I think you and I can both appreciate, that's been everyone kind of agrees it's also important, is health. So, mm -hmm. you know, do I have my, my health intact? Do I, you know, sleep, nutrition, movement, um, all those. So that's the theory of well-being is called PERMA. And, you know, there's an incredible body of science behind this. You and I love data. So, you know, you dig in and, you know, UPenn has a pause psych center and they have publications and the tools and resources. And I mean, I've just kind of been digging in and reading the literature base about how you teach these skills. That's, I think, what's so important. Dr. Ochoa at the APBA uh, conference, this, she said, how did she do, she gave this analogy. Uh, we all want the hole in one in golf. She gave a golf analogy. I'm a horrible sports analogy person. So if I got it, it's obviously obvious. Um, she said, everybody wants, everybody wants the hole in one, but we don't want to put the effort in to, to kind of learn how to play golf. Like we just want that hole in one, but the skills of well-being are skills you have to practice them right mm. that you have to there's this science but we actually have to engage in a gratitude practice we actually have to engage in meditation we have to engage in physical exercise you know and that's the part where it's like the behavior change part that's fun for me i'm like yeah how, how do you teach those things you know how you teach those things amanda behavior analysis behavior analysis and that's the fun part for me i'm like yes the hard part, it is the fun part for the nitty gritty scientist, right? You know, we've done many, or I've done many self-change projects over the course of my life, some public and some weren't shared, you know, not so public. But one of them was reducing single-use plastics and straws a couple of years ago. And I picked it because I'm picking up trash, you know, Hawaii, you have... So meaning and mattering, right? Am I connected to something bigger than myself? Right. Oh, I'm, like, well, yeah, I'm connected to the earth. I'm connected to this planet. I want, I want my, you know, the children behind me to have earth. Well, we're picking it up just for it to be put back down to keep picking it up. It was this sort of cycle, but in doing that whole process, one of the things I feel, well, I feel I selected straws out of all the items I was picking up because I'm like, I don't use them that much. It will be easy. No behavior change really is ever easy. And when I find it becomes easy, it's because you can contact really dense amounts of reinforcement in the natural environment. 
And they were like, okay, it's much easier as it is so much easier as it is rewarding. And so then I'm going to do it more and more and more. And then we understand, of course, reinforcement is the shaping of principles, of behavior. Absolutely getting started really is the hardest part in my experience. And I, and I think about like from a motivating operation for me, like I'm sitting here looking at 40 years of practice and knowing that autistic individuals are not fully included in our society, that the work that I thought was gonna be done by now is not. And I'm like, what's missing? What's missing? You know, like what's missing in our principles? What's missing? And I do think, you know, we have a, at Proof Positive, our primary, um, one of our core values that we live by is well-being wins. And I think like, not a hard one, if you actually think about it, like, what do I need to do right now? Well, if well-being wins, that may mean that I, you know, take a walk around the block to get my body in motion so that I really can concentrate on editorial review for a journal because then I can actually concentrate. Like, I mean, it's just, if you just think about well-being wins and I can, you know, guarantee you that I, I have not engaged in clinical practice where that was a value for children or for adults with whom I was working. It was skill acquisition wins. And it's not like that's not important. It's not. I mean, I'm not saying like, you know, but I think if your well-being isn't supported and encouraged, how do you acquire skills? You know, so well-being wins. Yeah, and it's it's very complex and much deeper than that. But having just a simple phrase, I always find it's useful at orienting us back to the mission, to the message, the purpose, the idea. It becomes the mantra. Okay as well-being wins, like well-being wins, you know, for me, you're mentioning health and also mental health. And one of the things that I've also kind of chuckled with is as I get a little bit older, I now have started to believe in almost every fortune cookie and proverb that's out there. Like health is wealth. And you know, as somebody, for me, I'm just healing from a back operation the moment that I could walk again, it's all I want to do, right? Like change is, it's, the behavior is possible, the reinforcement's out there. And it's like, yes, being able to walk again really emphasizes for me in, a, in such an intense way my understanding of motivation. But a huge part of it does come down to the gratitude of simply being able to do it. Right. And that's, I mean, these simple, when these people think about simple gratitude practices, like we've talked to, I mean, our, I mean, our grandparents, right? Count your blessings. I mean, it's, this is not, these are not things that are unknown. When we talk about from an evidence-informed or evidence-based though, is the evidence says a gratitude practice, one gratitude practice is three good things. And so that means end of the day, writing down three good things and reflecting on why you're grateful for them. And that actually increases your well-being which then increases your positive affect and increases your productivity. But it's like, you actually have to write them down. You actually have to reflect on them. You know, that's, that's, the, where the, that's where the skills come in. And that's what I'm hoping, like we can start to have people adopting is actually these practices and teaching autistic individuals also how to have these practices. This is so valuable, but also incredibly challenging to teach skills that we don't know ourselves or have in our own repertoires. I wouldn't say it's impossible. I certainly could probably teach someone how to do 
you know, appropriate golf swing or a golf stroke or swing. Obviously, it would be better if I was the expert, if I was imparting that knowledge. But how do you find some of the time to do the hard work? How hard has it been for yourself or for others in actually embodying these practices personally? Yeah. And that's, yeah, and you, it's 100% true, right? Like you can't really teach someone to do, you can kind of conceptually teach someone, but you can't teach someone. And um, I should definitely not be teaching people golf. Let's just say that or any other sports <laughs> minded activity at all. You and I could teach you how to walk. That's what I got down. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, so I think we also, when we we're building, so Proof Positive has content available to be able to do these things. So on our website, proofpositive.org, it has, and we've framed it that way. It's so great, Amanda, you say that. We have the kind of this four sequence. Learn, meaning you learn. What is three good things? What is this skill called three good things? What is the skill jolt of joy? What is the skill of what went well? And these are established things in the evidence-based literature. I wanna say that, like science and skills of happiness. Like these are, we're not, you know, this is not woo-woo, this is science and skills. So <laughs> what are these things? So learn. And then practice, meaning adults practice, and then teach. And our teach materials are Google Slides, worksheets, all the things that a teacher would just need to teach this, to, you know, teaching um, sequences. So learn, practice, that's first up for the adults in the universe. And then teach is the availability of these materials to teach it to autistic individuals. And then the last one is spread because we know we're part of a greater community. So how do you do this in a school community? How do you do this, share this with parents and families? So learn, practice, teach, spread. And for every one of those skills at our, at our website, um, we have those four resources and materials available for people to just start practicing the skills of happiness. Wow, I, this is so incredible. Are the materials that you're mentioning, are they already available? Can you elaborate? Are they age specific or related to particular settings? How, how do we, how do people get started? Where would they start? And how does one just begin navigating these resources and tools? Yeah, we're a new organization. So we also are really open to feedback. I just want to say that. Did I mention I really like people? And you could just call me and tell me what you think and all those things. Yeah, we're just starting to build these things. So we have two skills up right now. We'll add a skill a month is our goal. And I would say they are, um, our kind of thought is it's around kind of older elementary up through, you know, transition age youth 2021. Um, but the learn and practice are for anybody, like it's for any adult anywhere. Um, including autistic adults that have literacy skills and those things. There's, you know, anybody could use the teach one. We're really kind of focused on the educational environment. You and I know that those materials can also be used in a clinical environment as well. So we might use terms when we think about things like self-regulation or, you know, some of these other practices. It's like, I think about Nurbe Singh's meditation on the soles of the feet that came out like 15 years ago. And it results in behavior reduction, you know, and that was a multiple baseline study teaching meditation to autistic young individuals to, for behavior reduction. I'm like, oh, no, we should be teaching meditation. And so, mm -hmm. you know, here's the skill. What's the skill of meditation? What's the skill of doing these things? And so, you know, and again, all focused on well-being. If you meditate, right, you can usually engage in engagement a little bit higher 
which makes your accomplishments higher, you know, and most people who meditate also have kind of a stronger sense of meaning and mattering in their life. So it all kind of drives back to that theory, but that's where I think people get started is like dive in, slice and dice those materials for whatever you think of, do them for yourself first and then think about teaching. And from a clinical setting, I think you could very easily argue medical necessity for many of these skills, many, many of these skills. To think about how this would be framed from medical necessity lens. And so without knowing anyone's clients out there, I'm not going to exactly tell them how to do that. But one of the tips is to look at the diagnostic criteria. So if you're working with individuals who have autism or who are autistic, you know, they might have difficulty with regulating certain emotions, developing flexibility, rigidity, or differences if things are, you know, not the same. And so when we look at that and we look at what what is the skill or what is the intervention that can support that development, of course, improving the quality of life for that individual, and then in the long run, hopefully decreasing their need on other individuals, providers, parents, caregivers for all facets um, or fewer facets of their lives. And so I also absolutely... Um, think it's wonderful that you mentioned that because I was really aligned with you on that thought. Yeah, I think sometimes, um, yeah, self-regulation is probably the term we we use most often, but learning about, I think about even just, I was asking um, someone who helps us with inventory happens to also be autistic. And I asked, I said, Sebastian, what's your favorite positive emotion? And he was like, serenity and i was like oh so good like mine is definitely probably joy like you know when i think about my positive but i'm like why aren't we teaching individuals about all the different positive emotions and how to induce them jolts of joy you know like because it's like that's how you most of us when we're up against a difficult situation and are struggling with self-regulation we have these strategies we use to get ourselves to like get jolted out of it or, you know, re, you know, we also say like a reset or reconfigure or reframe. It's like, you know, and, and a skill is truly is called, we call it jolts of joy. You know, how do you just jolt your joy? And we know Barbara Fredrickson is the researcher has, you know, described how this helps people kind of get themselves out of a negative emotional state. And like, why aren't we teaching that to autistic individual and also why aren't we teaching that to ourselves ah i am like the jolt of joy even when you're talking about standing up and getting up and taking a quick walk and coming back and now focusing on that paper i was reading or now i can give you my all you know i think a lot about the conversations i've had with so many people in these podcast episodes and life and just encountering the people around me and all of these beautiful jewels and gems that i get And one of them was from um, Jonathan Tarbox, who said on the podcast, when he is present, he commits to being all there. And if that means he's only all in or all present for five minutes, and then he has to run off to the next task, he's going to do that. And what he communicated was that it was a value. It was something that he was trying to do. And when he mentioned that, I thought, all right, Maybe I want to multitask a little bit less and to be more fully present. 
But it also means being more intentional and having smaller amount of time perhaps to allocate to certain things so I can do that. And what it allowed me to do was recognize that when I was distracted, when I wasn't all in, when I didn't take that break or get up and take that movement walk or something else. And so for me, those were strategies of being able to, being aware of when I wasn't being present. And that was a huge skill on its own. So I always tell people, break down these tasks, these these things into small, small steps, because then it's then that you'll see your success. Right. Well, and I think about that, like with, with behavior change, what did someone, I just read someone said something like, I'm going to be where my feet are or something like that was like, I'm going to and be present where my feet are this year. And, uh, and I was like, oh, right. What, what they're talking about is I am here with you. I am not looking at my phone. I am not thinking about something else. I am like present. And that is a huge change in our society. You know, it's a huge change for us to make that decision. So I appreciate that and appreciate that perspective. Yeah. When we talk about being present and we all have different experiences, I know for me, when I started, it was manifesting itself in some strong, powerful forms of anxiety. And meeting with my therapist, she said one, one of the things she said to me was, it's often because we're too far focused backwards or forward, meaning like we're just too far in the past or in the future. And so let's bring ourselves to the present moment. Of course, people say it and we hear it. But when you say or when someone says hear, that you can hear it in the moment that you need it, when someone says it in the moment that you need to hear it, when you start to then buy into it and practice these skills, when you can replay and hear that mantra and it comes into its own almost instinctual like repetition and replay, that for me is when I start to be able to pivot and reframe, to shift, to get that jolt of joy and to remind myself to be aware. It is a hard skill and I'm so glad and grateful, beyond grateful, that this information is available because I do think it's one of the thing, it's one thing for all of us to embrace and become aware of. But that teaching part is also such a missing and critical piece of, of resources that have not been available to these communities. And well, what's missing? I think we have a long list. Um, but this is a really wonderful solution uh, to a very critical piece that has been missing. Thanks. I mean, I mean it's a start, right? Like we always, uh, you know, as, as Maya Angelou, just one of my all-time heroes just says, is like, when you know better, you do better. And that's how I feel right now. It's like, oh, I know better, so I'm going to do better. And I have this, you know, wonderful opportunity to, to start doing better and to start kind of spreading the word about doing better. Well, you already mentioned the website, but I do want to make sure that we have an opportunity to get all of the information out there. But before we do that, there's another comment that you made that I wanted to just emphasize, recognize, and appreciate, which is talking about the science and the evidence base. Recently, I was just encountering many wonderful humans at my first ever Kauaba, and while I was there, I got asked this question. You know, when we say evidence-based, do we mean only our evidence or the research in our field? 
And I thought, oh, I'm so glad you asked this question. And I think we have some work to do if that's the impression because it's not, it's, it's evidence that is science, that is research, that is demonstrated. It does not have to be, and many times it is not going to be found only in our behavior analytic research. So thank you. Yes, absolutely. And I also want to extend that to remind ourselves to, um, to kind of wrap back around to where we started, like evidence informed by who? So, I mean, I sit in this position of privilege um, in our society of, uh, you know, levels of education. I'm white, uh, you know, and there's a, like, we also want to be careful because we know that about 80% of our literature uh, of, you know, scientific literature is here in North America. It's conducted by white educated people with white educated subjects. So marginalized communities are not recognized. So yes, I, like you, I am a scientist and I really value data. And we also must interpret and understand that that evidence base is limited, very limited. And we need to be respectful to other cultures and other um, you know, belief systems around that. So yes, there's a ton of literature base you know, I'm cross-tained in public health, so I read public health literature. Social workers are my heroes. I love reading social work literature. In this case, it's the field of positive psychology, again, grounded in, in evidence and science. And then also all, all of those fields are limited because of our uh, marginalization and structural racism and ableism. And I mean, how much of the autism literature was written by people who are autistic? Um, very, very little. And, you know, I can leave it to you to just leave Jim and Jewel and just one after another. And I'm going to walk away with solutions. You know, again, one of the conversations that I really appreciated at Kawaba was a pediatric, I believe, neurologist who was talking about how we will never have enough diagnosticians to diagnose the volume of individuals who need to access therapy, where the diagnostic part is the holdup or the problem. And he talked about, you know, even when we look at these tools, they were just inherently clouded with all sorts of biases in how they were designed, what they were looking for, and what was considered to be typical presentation or not. And so again, another piece of an important connection, because it's not just behavior analytic evidence or scientific evidence, all of this definitely matters. There's other pieces that should be informing our thinking and our practices. It is just as important that we are making sure that we are looking at diversity and the resources. And then we're also looking at the caliber and the context which is what, Patricia, I believe you have so beautifully illustrated. Once again, thank you for connecting it back to where we began this conversation as if there were a script to this conversation. There, there wasn't. Patricia, please mention the website. Again, the resources, anywhere where people can contact you. Absolutely. Yeah, visit us and join us. Connect with us. Um, we use the term alliance purposely because we are a sense of community. Um, our website is proof positive dot org and i want everybody to join us because just like i believe healthcare is a right i believe well-being is a right 
So let's work together to make sure that it's present for everyone, including the autism community and autistic individuals. Trisha, thank you so much. And thank you to all of the listeners for joining us. For more information, you can definitely learn about Dr. Patricia Wright and the amazing work that her and her team are doing at proofpositive.org. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about applied behavior analysis, you can always do that by going to www.behaviorbabe.com.